0: Last time we spoke about the action of Coley Point and the American offensive to take Kokomona. After getting smashed during the battle for Henderson Field, the Japanese were given no chance to rest as Vandegrift pressed harder upon them. While Rupertus took command of the Coley Point action, the Marines to the west of the Metanicao surrounded the Japanese defenders near Point Cruz, causing massive casualties upon them. Over in Green Hell, General Hori's men tried to defend Oivi and Gurari, but the Australians managed to hit an exposed southern flank, leading to the Japanese defenses crumbling chaotically. In all the chaos, the Japanese had to retreat in piecemeals on their way towards the Kamusi River. General Hori, upon learning his men were being attacked at Girua, hastily tried to get there to take command of the situation. In his careless haste, he along with two other men made the faithful decision to ford the open sea in a canoe and he would pay the ultimate price, his life. And for today, we will be speaking about one of the greatest naval battles of the Pacific War. This episode is the Naval Battle of Guadalcanal. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we can begin, I just want to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and much, much more, so go give them a look over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest. The Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube, where I've just released a seven-part series on many of the Medals of Honor earned at Guadalcanal. Give it a look, it'll mean a lot to me. The Guadalcanal campaign was wearing the Japanese down, After three disastrous attempts to take Henderson Field by the IGA and an incredible naval victory at the Battle of Santa Cruz, the IGN felt that they had achieved naval supremacy and must make up for the IGA's failures. On November the 8th, Admiral Yamamoto issued his operations order for the November attack and in an extraordinary feat, the American cryptanalysts extracted most of its key components. When Admiral Halsey returned to his headquarters at Nomea, on November the 9th, his staff handed him the outline for a forthcoming Japanese operation. The 8th Fleet was preparing to escort a large troop convoy to Guadalcanal on Z-Day. Aircraft were massing at Buin with the 11th Air Fleet under orders to attack on Z-Day-3. A Japanese carrier group was heading for a fueling rendezvous due north of the equator to prepare for a strike on Z-Day-1. The only thing the Americans did not know about was the Battleship Bombardment plan for Henderson Field. It honestly can't be overstated how much intelligence did for America and Britain's performance during World War II, particularly Britain's Enigma machine. Remember kids, knowing is half the battle. From truck, the combined fleet was going to launch carriers Junyo, Zoyo, three escort carriers, four battleships, five heavy and six light cruisers, and 21 destroyers. And duly note that lineup excludes the 8th Fleet. On November the 10th, Coast Watchers began reporting the mass of over 60 ships at Shortland, including 6 cruisers and 33 destroyers. The same day cryptanalysts figured out Z-Day was November the 13th. Now, even with the incredible Edge, as Halsey would put it, reading the enemy's mail, he had a lot to be worried about. Enterprise, his only carrier, was under repair and it was projected that she would be without use of her forward elevator until at least November the 21st. What he had on hand was two battleships, four heavy and four light cruisers, and 22 destroyers. Halsey, however, was not considering simply to evade battle. He sent orders to Admiral Kincaid to get Enterprise underway by the morning of November the 11th, and to quote, "...be prepared to strike enemy targets in the Cactus area." The air was very tense in Washington. There was a true feeling that the IGN may have its turning point in the campaign. On the morning of November 11th, in Shortland Harbor, Admiral Tanaka was surveying the shipping. He had 11 transports holding supplies for 30,000 men for 20 days, 31,500 artillery shells, 83 landing craft, and 7,000 soldiers. The soldiers consisted of the 1st Battalion of the 229th Infantry, the 2nd Battalion of the 230th Infantry, and they answered to Major General Suketomo Tanabe, the 2nd Ship Group Commander. To provide them an escort, Tanaka reinforced Destroyer Squadron 2, now numbering 12 vessels. The recently reorganized Combined Fleet and 8th Fleet also lent distant protection for the convoy in the form of Shokaku, Zoikaku, Zuyo, and Junyo. The Hiyo had repair work being done at the time and could not participate. Admiral Kondo's advance force mustered together four Kongo-class battleships, three heavy and three light cruisers, and 21 destroyers. The Japanese, as usual, divided their forces. Kondo would have heavy cruiser Atago as his flagship, alongside her sister, Takeo, sailing under the main body. The Junyo was the air striking unit with battleships Kongo, Haruna, and four destroyers as her screen. Heavy cruisers Tone, light cruisers Sendai, and destroyer Ayanami were the Eastern Reconnaissance unit. According to Kondo's plan, the various components of the Advanced Force would spawn a bombardment unit on Sea Day-1. Rear Admiral Hiroaki Abe would take Battleship Division 11, the Heoe and the Kirishima to Shell Henderson Field. His screen would be Destroyer Squadron 10, and sweeping ahead of the unit would be Destroyer Squadron number 4. Admiral Mikawa's 8th fleet was divided into a main force consisting of two heavy cruisers and two destroyers, and a support force consisting of two heavy, one light cruiser and four destroyers. Rear Admiral Shoiji Nishimura would take the support force to help bombard Henderson Field on Z-Day. I bet a lot of you listening are getting a bit of a déjà vu feeling. Are the Japanese making an overly complex operation with multiple moving pieces to perform actions at specific times? Yep. It's another one of those Admiral Yamamoto specials. Let's overly complicate stuff so that there's a lot of things that can go wrong. On November the 12th, Admiral Turner taking a similar page perhaps to the Japanese, planned to run two separate, but heavily escorted American groups of transports to Guadalcanal carrying 5,500 reinforcements, and if possible, to help disrupt Japanese plans to do the same. Turner dispatched Rear Admiral Norman Scott with Task Group 62.4, consisting of light cruiser Atlanta and three destroyers. They would escort three transports carrying the 1st Marine Aviation Engineer Battalion. Turner would take command of Task Group 67.1 carrying the 182nd Infantry Regiment, the 4th Marine Replacement Battalion, Artillery, Navy and Marine Casuals, and supplies aboard four transports. His force consisted of two heavy, two light cruisers, and ten destroyers. Meanwhile Halsey took command of Task Force 16 built around the USS Enterprise, and he would have two battleships, two heavy cruisers, and six destroyers. There would also be 14 american submarines and six older s-boats to patrol the south pacific waters to support the entire offensive admiral yamamoto likewise had 14 i-boats for their side scott's group took a route north around san cristobal and managed to evade the enemy submarine patrols but not their search planes on november the 11th his ships were attacked by some vowels resulting in some damage to a transport while the rest of his force continued to join Turner's larger task group for November the 12th. Early day of the 12th, six American transports and their escort were just off Lunga Point beginning the long task of unloading. Lieutenant Commander Mitzi on Mount Austin reported sighting the unloading back to Rabal, stating he saw three battleships, three cruisers, 11 destroyers, and about five transports. Mitzi's report reached the Combined Fleet HQ around breakfast time, and Admiral Ugaki predicted the Americans would linger around to try and disrupt the Japanese efforts to do the same. But many other staff predicted the Americans would simply pull out as soon as they could. Thus, no real action was taken to move units to hit the Americans on the naval front. In the air, the 11th Air Fleet launched a strike of 16 torpedo-armed Bettys and 30 Zeros. Coast watchers saw the airwave incoming and warned Turner to get his ships ready to defend themselves, while 20 Wildcats and 8 P-39s scrambled to meet the enemy. At 205, the Japanese wave split into two, swinging northeast and southeast, to hit the American transports. Turner swerved his ships hard to port to offer only their narrow sterns as targets. God, seeing things like that makes me really want to play World of Warships. Not a sponsor, by the way, but hell, please. Do sponsor us, I really love that game. All the torpedoes missed while the American pilots swooped on the southeastern group. Turner's ships began rapid firing 5-inch shells, anti-aircraft fire, and rather tragically some friendly fire killed 5 men on the destroyer Buchanan. One Betty that was hit bore in on San Francisco and smashed into one of her 20mm batteries. One officer and 23 men were killed as the Betty caromed off San Francisco's superstructure 45 men were wounded, including Commander Mark Kruder and his executive officer. The entire attack only lasted eight minutes, and the American pilots claimed that they had taken down 17 bombers and six fighters, while the sailors claimed nine more bombers. In reality, 11 Bettys and 10 were shot down, at the cost of three Wildcats and one P 39. Meanwhile, recent reinforcements to the Cactus Air Force saw them grow to 77 operational aircraft. 20 Wildcats, 8 P-38s, 18 P-39s, 23 Dauntless, and 8 Avengers. To back that up from Espiritu Santo were two squadrons, the 69th and the 70th Army Air Force of B-26 ready with torpedoes. Mind you those are American torpedoes, so probably pretty useless. American reconnaissance planes were working overtime alongside some radio intelligence to pinpoint the enemy positions. They had the precise location of Abe's bombardment unit, north of the Solomons, and destroyer squadron number 4 making its rendezvous with Abe. A bit later they detected Tanaka's convoy as it went past Shortland, confirming the Japanese objective. Turner estimated the Japanese strength to be at least two battleships, four heavy and two light cruisers, and around 12 destroyers. He also figured they would be targeting his transports after they withdrew through the indispensable strait or that they would bombard Henderson Field. No matter which one they were doing, Turner knew he had to face them alone, because Task Force 16 was too far south to intervene. To his credit, Turner did not forsake the protection of Henderson Field. Turner took 5 cruisers and 8 destroyers to stop the Japanese surface forces. Yet, to his discredit, Turner also made a rather poor choice in who he gave tactical command to. Turner had two choices. Norman Scott, who had been out for six months at sea and had a major success in a night surface action. Or there was Daniel Callaghan, who had two weeks at sea by this time, a little battle experience, but held 15 days seniority over Scott as a flag officer. He chose Callaghan. Who would take the five cruisers and eight destroyers to confront Abe's two battleships, one cruiser and 14 destroyers? Abe's bombardment unit possessed clear gun superiority. Japanese battleships could fire 14-inch shells, while the American heavy cruisers could fire only 8-inch shells. Turner believed Callaghan's torpedo batteries would be the equalizer against the Japanese capital ships. But the Japanese overwhelmingly held the advantage in torpedoes. They had 190 of them, and their long lances actually worked, unlike the American Mark 15. After chaperoning the transports, Calligan reverse coursed at 10pm to form his battle formation. He emulated Scott's formation at the Battle of Cape Esperance, and he made the exact same mistake Scott made at that battle. He did not place his flag on a ship with superior SG radar. He also made the mistake of placing none of the SG Radar ships at the forefront, in the column. Abe's bombardment unit and Tanaka's destroyer squadron No. 4 formed their battle composition with the destroyers taking the lead. Abe issued orders for the bombardment to take place at 1.50am to about 2.30am and sent Tanaka first to comb the waters around Lunka Point and Tulagi to, to find American surface vessels. At 9.45pm, the R-Area Air Force reported to Abe that the weather over Guadalcanal was becoming so bad it would make aircraft spotting practically impossible. In view of the weather issue, Abe decided to turn back for a while, bide his time, and await further developments. While the bombardment unit lingered northeast, destroyer squatch No. 4 headed a bit north, slipping out of position. At 12.30am on November the 13th, Abe decided to carry out the bombardment as the weather seemed to be improving. Fifteen minutes later, Destroyer Squadron 4 was conducting a sweep of the waters around Lunga Point, but unbeknownst to Abe and Tanaka, the bad weather had resulted in both groups becoming way off course. Abe's unit was actually in front of Tanaka's now. At one twenty-five, signal lights on Cape Esperance were reported, and one of Heoway's Pete's reported seeing ten ships off Lunga Point around sunset. Abe received quite a bunch of differing and contradictory reports and he contemplated the possibility of encountering enemy vessels. But he had heard no more reports from destroyer squadron number 4, who he had assumed was ahead of him sweeping the area. Thus, at 1.30 am, Abe ordered the bombardment to commence. At that same moment, Callaghan's task force approached Lunga Point and Helena's SG radar picked up Abe at a range of 27,100 yards. However, Callaghan had to rely on TBS radio for the ships with SG Radar to report to him, and a ton of radio chatter was disrupting the reporting. It seems Callaghan tried to place his column in such a way as to cross Abbey's T, but instead of crossing it, it turned into a collision. At 142, Commander Stokes aboard the Cushing reported sighting three Japanese destroyers crossing ahead from port to starboard. Those said destroyers also saw the Cushing, and events began to occur rapidly that neither Abbey or Callaghan were prepared for. Cushing's rudder swung hard to port as it prepared to fire guns and torpedoes at the enemy just 2,000 yards away. Cushing's commander Stokes asked, Shall I let them have a couple of fish? Now Callaghan first approved Stokes' permission to fire torpedoes, but then at 145, he ordered... Stand by to open fire." By 1.47, the column was returning course north, and these abrupt maneuvers threw the closely spaced fast-moving American column into a disarray that would not come back into proper formation. The three Japanese destroyers Stokes had sighted veered left, while Atlanta turned sharply to port with San Francisco following suit. Calligan saw this, and he asked, What are you doing? Captain Jenkins of the Atlanta replied, Avoiding our own destroyers. The Cushing swung to a northern course and sighted the Nagara, just off her starboard bow. The American formation was aimed directly at the Japanese formation, en route to pass between their two battleships. Callaghan now perceived the enemy formation and at 148 gave the order, Odd ships fire to starboard, even ships fire to port. This was a pretty insane way to attack the enemy, given the disparity in guns, and the fact many of the American ships had trained their said guns on the enemy already, and by giving that order the way he did, many of them would suddenly have to switch targets. And I do apologize for making another mention of World of Warships again, but it might be easier to understand if you've played this game. Basically imagine this. Your left broadsides are pointing towards the enemy. All of your turrets are turned in that said direction to hit an enemy vessel, but now you've just received orders that you have to turn all of your guns in the opposite direction to hit another enemy vessel. So all of those turrets have to make an 80 degree turn, and account for all of the differing variables. Distance, speed, it's a lot of math work, and it takes time. So Callaghan had forced a close-range brawl, the likes of which had not been seen before or thereafter in the war. Over on the other side of the coin, Abe was perplexed and uncertain of his own position. The most forward ship, the Yudachi, reported the enemy was bearing towards Lunga. Abe had no idea what enemy they were referring to, what strength, or where said enemy could possibly be. A minute later, the Heoway signaled a warning that four enemy cruisers were just ahead. To the bombardment unit, Abe signaled Probable enemy ships in sight, bearing 136 degrees. Amongst the tension, Captain Nishida of the Heoway began arguing with his gunnery officer whether they had enough time to switch from high explosive shells to armor-piercing shells to deal with the enemy ships. Because let us not forget... The battleships were equipped with high explosive shells to make for the bombardment of Henderson Field, and high explosive shells are not very useful against ships above the weight class of a destroyer. For cruisers, battleships, and all those other heavy ships, you wanted armor-piercing shells. And much like the turning of the turrets debacle over from the American side, it takes time to switch your types of shells you're using. Aboard the flagship, lookouts reported 6 enemy cruisers in the direction of Lunga, and another 7 towards Tulagi. Abe ordered his captains to shift their target to the enemy ships and at 1.45am the main body of battleships Heowai, Kirishima, and their close escort of Nagata and six destroyers turned 80 degrees to meet the enemy. Although the visibility was good enough to permit firing upon the enemy, Abe also instructed searchlights to be turned on, so the enemy could be better revealed and to try and mask the movements of other Japanese ships. The Heowey and Akatsuki searchlights targeted Atlanta, whose superstructure loomed over the rest. Alongside the cones of light came the first Japanese salvos at 1.48 am. Captain Jenkins aboard Atlanta had sighted Nagara at around 3,000 yards moments before searchlights rained upon his own ship. Atlanta's main battery turned back to port to fire upon the searchlights coming at her from a range of just 1,600 yards. Atlanta's after guns were targeting the Heoway, while her forward guns targeted a rear destroyer, most likely the Akatsuki. Atlanta managed to score some hits, but the Akatsuki fired torpedoes and one of them pierced Atlanta abreast of her forward engine room. Then a series of 5-inch shells and Heoway's 6-inch shells peppered Atlanta. Fires began all over Atlanta and she steadily drifted out of action, taking water into her engine spaces. The opening moves drove both formations to disintegrate, and in the words of one American skipper, the battle had become... ...a barroom brawl after the lights had been shot out. And much like the skipper's description, this battle is extremely chaotic to tell. There are so many confused engagements simultaneously happening. So the best way to tell it is by going through the fate of each ship in order of the formation. At the American spear tip was the Cushing, targeting the Hailway, just 1,000 yards to her port. Despite the temptation, Cushing's commander Parker heeded Callaghan's orders and turned Cushing's main battery to target a destroyer 2,000 yards starboard while her 20mm machine guns peppered Haaway and she launched torpedoes to port. Many of the Japanese gunners found the Cushing early on and maimed her engineering plant. Cushing lost headway and bent around starboard just as the hairway's rear approached her starboard quarter. Cushing launched 6 torpedoes at the Hairway at just 1,200 yards, and her sailors believed that they saw 3 hits. What they saw was an illusion however, but what was not an illusion is the incredible amount of hits Cushing received. She took 10 major hits from both sides, silencing her guns crippling her steering and knocking out her power while the enemy machine guns continued to spray her top size, causing carnage. After a 5 minute respite, the Nagera and Yuki Kaze passed on Cushing's starboard side, scoring another 7 hits as Cushing could only retaliate with her 20mm machine guns. Cushing had no power to move nor firepower to fight off the onslaught. Parker soon gave orders to abandon ship. Prior to the guns going off, the Laffy had her sights on the Heoway and Kirishima off her port bow. The destroyer pulled to stern close to the Heoway and sprayed the battleship with her 5 inch guns and machine guns which killed Captain Mesakane Suzuki, Abe's chief of staff. She also fired torpedoes at point blank range, with all of them failing to arm before hitting the Heoway. Laffy sped past Heoway and after a brief lull ran right into the Asagumo Semidare, and Murasame. The Japanese trio battered Leifi with 5-inch shells and then a single torpedo smashed into her stern. A larger salvo, most likely from the Kiroshima, smashed into Leifi's boiler room and alongside other hits her propulsion plant and steering were badly damaged. More sabos began to take out Leifi's guns and caused fires all over her. As the sank, a large explosion occurred killing countless men aboard and in the surrounding water, including Lieutenant Commander Hank. Callaghan's odd-even order found the Sterret, who was the third in the column with her guns targeting to port, so she had to shift them to starboard. She tossed 13 salvos at a target around 4,000 yards away, it was most likely the Nigara. Sterret took a hit to her helm control and began to struggle with her steering and engines. The O'Bannon pulled up abreast of her, trying to blanket the line of fire. Sterrett's guns paused, but the Japanese did not, and they concentrated their fire knocking out her SC radar, radio antennas, and fighting lights. Sterrett let loose four torpedoes, and countless 5-inch salvos added an enemy ship to her port at just 2,000 yards. Sterett's sailors believed they saw two torpedoes hit, but these were just mere gun flashes. At 2.20, Sterrett's crew spotted a Japanese destroyer just 1,000 yards to her starboard bow. Sterrett hit the destroyer with two torpedoes which actually exploded. Yes, a rare occurrence. They pummeled the main armament, and many observers believed the destroyer sank almost immediately. At 2.27, Sterrett received a few hits on her port quarter, disabling her 5-inch guns and causing an explosion that killed many of her crew. And this also began to cause flooding of her magazines. With no more torpedoes, only half of her armament operational, and one-fifth of her crew in casualty, Lieutenant Commander Coward, oof, that's a rough last name to have, he took the ship out of action east and then south. The Sterett had sustained 11 direct hits, some of which were from 14-inch salvos. The last and largest of the leading American destroyers was the O'Bannon. Her experience was full of desperate maneuvers trying to avoid collisions with other American vessels and some very up close fighting. The initial fishtailing twists of the American column left O'Bannon swerving hard to avoid hitting ships just ahead of her. When the enemy's searchlights poured over the Cushing, O'Bannon's gunner pelted the superstructures of the vessels using them. Several twists and turns were made to avoid hitting Sterrett, leaving O'Bannon astern of Leife on a westerly course. A heavy crossfire began enveloping Cushing and Leafy as O'Bannon was opening fire upon the Hayway. When Cushing and Leafy dropped out of sight, O'Bannon found herself leading the American column with the Hayway just 1,800 yards to her starboard. All of Hayway's batteries fired upon the O'Bannon with every shot passing overhead. At 1.56 the Hayway was ablaze with many fires and the O'Bannon fired two torpedoes at close range right into the Hayway. O'Bannon's crew believed that they saw both hits cause explosions as burning particles fell back onto O'Bannon's deck. But this was another illusion. With all targets to her starboard, none visible, O'Bannon reversed course to the east, sighting five burning and exploding vessels on her starboard quarter. At 201, she swung hard to left to narrowly miss the sinking bow of the Barton. O'Bannon began to help save survivors in the water before breaking off the action and took a course southeast to find some more targets. Next in the American line was the San Francisco, who opened up with her seven 8-inch guns targeting one of the two destroyers to her starboard bow, most likely the Udachi. The target began to blaze with fires, drawing attention from other American ships, leading Captain Young to order his gunnery officers to switch their target to another enemy destroyer. The other target unfortunately ended up being the Atlanta. It seems the disabled Atlanta had drifted into the line of fire, and the two main batteries from San Francisco scored hits directly into Atlanta's superstructure. Among the dead were to be Admiral Scott and three of his four staff officers. It also seems Callaghan saw this tragedy occur, because he quickly ordered the flagship to cease fire, but inadvertently this order was sent as a general broadcast to the entire task force. The command was, cease firing, OWN SHIPS! Though most of the ships disobeyed the order, Captain DuBose aboard Portland said back, What is the dope? Did you want a ceasefire? Callaghan replied and clarified his order, Give her hell! We want the big ones! Get the big ones first! The San Francisco then swung hard left, opening fire upon the Hayoway at a range of 2,500 yards. Both ships exchanged fire as other ships added crossfire to the mix. The third salvo of the 14-inch shells from Hawaii hit San Francisco in the bridge work, blowing the ship's navigator, Commander Ray Arison, over the bulwark and down two decks where he landed upon a 5-inch gun. The frantic gun crew, thinking the man dead, quote, unceremoniously threw him off, hurling ejected hot cases after him. Jeez, it really sucks to be that guy. More salvos hit San Francisco from her port-to-bridge structure, killing many men. Then, Heoway's secondary guns scored many hits, one of which mortally wounded Captain Young. One secondary shell exploded on a girder directly over Callaghan, killing him and all but one member of his staff. At the same time, a shell hit the auxiliary control station killing Commander Joseph Hubbard, the executive officer, and another shell hit the stateroom killing Commander Crowder. The devastating hits upon San Francisco left only 31-year-old Lieutenant Commander Bruce McCandless, a young quartermaster, as the new captain. McCandless quickly surmised the ship was veering south as a result of the chaos and confusion. He could have left the ship pointing in that direction, out of the battle, with her honor intact. As the poor ship had been hit by 45 shells, her armaments were silenced, fires were everywhere, and 500 tons of water were rushing aboard. But McCandless recognized the other ships in the column upon seeing the flagship disengage might all disengage themselves. Thus, he put San Francisco right back pointing west towards the enemy. An enemy destroyer passed down the port side trading blows with the port's 5-inch gun. The severe losses among San Francisco elevated Lieutenant Commander Hubert Schonland to command. He was the ship's damage control officer, and was below deck fully occupied trying to keep the cruiser afloat. So. He wisely left McCandless to take charge. Surviving gunners kept intermittent exchanges with the Heoway and the Kiroshima until McCandless finally peeled east, skirting Guadalcanal shore. In the opening engagement, the Portland opened fire upon a destroyer to her starboard side. Captain DuBose disregarded the ceasefire order and swung his ship north to continue firing upon an enemy cruiser. At 158, a torpedo hit Portland far aft on her starboard side. The hit jammed her rudder, locking her into a constant right circle. As Portland was completing her first loop, the Haraway got into her line of fire and Portland fired four salvos from her four turrets at 4000 yards, claiming 10 to 14 hits. Portland then withheld further fire from her main battery to avoid friendly fire as ships were scrambling around her in the confusion. Helena with her superior SG radar already had her main battery targeting the Akatsuki when it came time to open fire. Continuous rapid fire took out Akatsuki's searchlights, but also attracted return fire. Not doing too much damage, but did stop a clock aboard Helena's upper works at 148. A very cinematic moment. Helena made her way past a few vessels and came across the Atmatsukaze, firing upon the San Francisco. At 2.04, Helena opened fire with both her main and secondaries, only giving a brief pause when she crossed through San Francisco's line of fire. In the meantime, her 40mm batteries were peppering the negara just 300 yards away. Helena found herself passing around a flotilla of burning and exploding ships as she continued to fire upon the enemy. Then, five salvos hit Helena, providing light damage. The actions of the Juno are hard to pinpoint. During the initial engagement, the Jeanneau pulled up abreast of San Francisco's starboard side. As Jeanneau was passing San Francisco, she was hit with a torpedo right into her port side. The hit knocked out her central fire control and disabled her steering. Jeanneau almost collided with the Helena and perhaps fired around 25 rounds, some of which were directed at the Helena. Captain Swenson took the crippled ship out of the battle area quite early. The rear unit of destroyers, Barton, Aaron Ward, Fletcher, and Monson were in a bad position at the opening of the battle. Aaron Ward began firing upon the Hayaway at 7,000 yards and by one fifty-five had to back down to avoid the Udachi just ahead of her. A minute later she saw two torpedoes pass underneath her and hit Barton's starboard side, causing a large explosion and sinking the ship immediately. Aaron Ward got up to about 18 knots going north with her torpedo battery targeting the Hayaway. But she had to hold fire as the San Francisco veered into close range with the Hayaway. Aaron Ward then peeled off to open fire on an enemy cruiser or a destroyer. The frenzy of fire attracted enemy searchlights from both sides, and the Aaron Ward fought her way out of the gauntlet of illumination. Aaron Ward received nine direct hits, three of which were from 14 inch shells. Her director was disabled, as was her radar and steering control. By 2.35 her power went out and she coasted to a halt. The barn upon seeing enemy searchlights and gunfire joined in the general brawl by firing upon the ships illuminating the light with her 5-inch guns. At 52, she launched 5 torpedoes to port and after 7 minutes of combat narrowly avoided colliding with another vessel. A long lance hit her forward fire room, followed by another that broke her in two, forcing her to sink rapidly, taking 60% of her crew down with her. One of the torpedoes that hit Barton had passed right under Monson. Monson likewise launched 5 torpedoes targeting the highway, but none would hit the mark. Monson's guns fired upon an enemy destroyer at her port while she launched all her remaining torpedoes at the same destroyer. As Monson's 20mm guns peppered the enemy destroyer just a quarter mile away, star shells burst overhead prompting Lieutenant Commander McCombs to believe he was firing on a friendly, so he ordered recognition lights to be turned on. This immediately attracted two searchlights to pour upon Monson and then an avalanche of shells. 37 shells turned Monson into a burning wreck and her crew were forced to abandon ship by 2.20. Fletcher was the last ship in the American column and because of her SG radar, had already been targeting the Akatsuki. Yet upon seeing the Akatsuki battered by heavy fire from other ships, Fletcher decided to change targets to the Inazuma. Fletcher was one of the few ships who complied with the ceasefire order, as some of her crew observed the Barton and Monson were sinking. Fletcher eventually continued to fire on multiple enemy targets and stalked a very large vessel that may have very well been the Helena. She fired torpedoes at the large vessel, with some of her crew reporting hits, but, as usual, this was just an illusion. Through the entire action, the Fletcher went untouched. Over on the side of the Japanese, during the thick of the battle, at the offset, was Destroyer Squadron number 10, forming a screen for the Heoway and the Kurushima. The Nagara cruised ahead of the two battleships with the Yukikaze, Amatsukaze, and Terazuki to the port and destroy Division 6 to the starboard. Nagata and Yukikaze were the ones who opened searchlights on the Atlanta and San Francisco, before opening fire and then peeling west to hit the Cushing. Commander Hara of the Amatsukaze raced down Nagara's starboard side, curving in towards the American Column. Flares revealed the last 6 vessels of the American Column, and the Amatsukaze launched 8 torpedoes at 154 at a range of 300 yards. Commander Hera then saw two pillars of fire, it was the Barton getting hit, that vanished quite quickly. At one hundred fifty nine, Hara launched four more torpedoes at the Jeuneau, who was engaging with the Yudachi. Hera thought that they had landed at least one hit, then at 2.02, was set to rejoin the Heue, the only recognizable ship at the time. En route, the Amatsukaze ran into the San Francisco and fired four more torpedoes, but none armed before they hit. The Amatsukaze began shelling San Francisco and kept her searchlights on the ship. The Helena began to fire upon the Amatsukaze wrecking her main battery director, radio room and knocking out her steering and armament hydraulics. Amatsukaze was on fire and turning in circles, but luckily three friendly destroyers came to the scene diverting Helena's attention and thus saving the Amatsukaze who had suffered 37 hits and had 43 dead crew. The Tarazuki got into the brawl with one enemy cruiser and at least six destroyers, one of which was the Leifi, but never used her searchlights and thus came out of the battle with very little damage. The three destroyers of Destroyer Division 6 had pulled ahead of the highway the moment the firing had begun. The Akatsuki was in the center with Inazuma to her starboard and the Ikazui to her port. All three ships turned to port passing in front of the American column ahead of the Atlanta firing upon the flagship. Akatsuki's searchlights earned her gunfire from at least five enemy ships, beginning many fires and drawing even more gunfire. The Akatsuki was battered until she sank beneath the waves with a handful of survivors captured later on. The Inazuma swung to port, taking a score of hits before being forced to withdraw. The Ikazui made her own turn to port while firing torpedoes. Ikazui received some hits to her forecastle gun mount and also peeled northwest to withdraw from the battle. The five ships of Destroyer Squadron Four fought as two groups. In action from the offset were the Yudachi and Harusame. Yudachi's performance in this battle was quite remarkable. After crossing Cushing's bow at 142, commander of the Yudachi, Kiyoshi Kikawa, swung her 270 degrees to port and charged directly into the American column. At 1.55, Yudachi fired eight torpedoes at a range of 1,500 meters, hitting Portland and possibly Jeanneau. Then she passed through the confused American formation causing further confusion and sending countless American vessels into radical maneuvers. Yudachi gave and received salvos from cruisers and destroyers at very close range. Kikua pulled her north and came across what he believed to be a friendly, but upon flashing recognition lights was met by shellfire most likely from Aaron Ward. The Yudachi sustained multiple hits, leaving her dead in the water by 2.26. The Harusame lost sight of Yudachi amid the chaotic gunfire, and made some twists and turns to unleash shells and released many torpedoes. Not much is known about her overall performance during this battle, however. The last Japanese vessels were destroyers of Squadron 4, the Asagumo, leading the Murasame, and Samidare. Just before the gunfire commenced, Admiral Takama guided the squadron across the rear and then port side of the battleships. This course skimmed far north of the action, saving the squadron from shell hits, but limited their opportunity to fire torpedoes. This squadron was most likely the culprits who shelled Leify and the Monsin, before distracting Helena, who was about to make a killing blow upon the Amatsukaze. Murasame fired 7 torpedoes at a cruiser claiming to make 3 hits at 204, sinking it. The Asagumo fired salvos and torpedoes on an enemy vessel between 2.15 to 2.25. The Murasame received a hit to her boiler room and peeled off out of action. The Samidale received some shells starting a small fire, but caused little damage. The Heoway's searchlights attracted gunfire from almost every American vessel, and several hits were received upon her massive forward tower foremast. Nearly every platform was on fire, making the Heoway stand out even more so. None of the American guns could penetrate her main armor belt, but 85 shells punctured her light armor and ordinary steel structures. All of her light anti-aircraft guns were knocked out, as was her internal communications and control circuits for the main batteries. Her secondary battery directors were disabled, and in the confusion, Heoway's 6-inch guns peppered Asagumo, the Samedade, and the Murasame. At 154, the Heoway turned to port to duel the San Francisco. The suffered a critical hit from an 8-inch shell which jammed her rudder and flooded her steering machinery compartment. Just 1,000 meters astern to Heioui, the Kirishima fired 99 of her 14-inch guns and 313 from her secondary batteries. She hit the Cushing, Leife, and San Francisco to devastating effect. When Kirishima separated from the Heioui, heading north at 154, a 6-inch shell just nicked her. Over on the shore of Guadalcanal, Marines and soldiers gathered along the coast watching what Lieutenant Marillette called an awesome melee of light and sound. One private, Robert Leckie, recalled this The starshells rose, terrible and red. Giant tracers flashed across the night in orange arches. The sea seemed a sheet of polished obsidian on which the warships seemed to have been dropped and been immobilized, centered amid concentric circles like shock waves that form around a stone dropped in. Abbe's nerves were quite shot. In the absolute chaos, all he could discern was enemy destroyers passing by at basically rifle fire range, machine gun tracers pelting his flagship killing his chief of staff and crew everywhere, and the rumble and sound of shells smashing his ship all over. Although the Japanese ships certainly dished out more than they had received, the brawl had become so intertwined and chaotic, it prompted Abe to abandon the bombardment mission. At 2.26, Captain Hoover aboard Helena ordered everyone by radio to set a course for 92 degrees, marking an end to the battle, though many ships continued to fire along the way. A brutal 38 minute encounter left two American destroyers and one Japanese sunk. Two American cruisers and three destroyers alongside one Japanese battleship and destroyer were disabled. Several hundred Americans and scores of Japanese clung to wreckage in the water and neither side expected nor gave any mercy. At 3am the Asogumo and Murasame found the Yudachi on fire and motionless. After inspecting her. Takama believed she was beyond saving and ordered her to abandon ship at 317. However, rather than grabbing her crew, he turned his squadron north and left two boats with instructions for Yudachi sailors to make their way to Cape Esperance, just three miles away. This did not sit well with the commander of Destroyer Division 2, who sent the samidare to pick up Yudachi's crew because… wow, Takama was a dick. At 3, Kiroshima sent a report of the battle stating both sides suffered considerable damage and that the bombardment mission had to be cancelled. At 3.44, Admiral Yamamoto postponed the landing of the 14th and ordered Tanaka to turn the convoy back to Shortland. The highway was a fiery nightmare, and her rudder was jammed full right, while flooding prevented men from getting to the compartment to repair it. Younger officers urged Captain Masio Nishida, to beach the Heoway and shell Henderson field while the crew could come ashore to join the ground assault on Guadalcanal. Although this probably was a heroic idea, the Heoway was a Congo-class battleship and by far one of the most valuable warships of the entire fleet. Therefore, he tried everything to save her. As first light came about between Savo and Guadalcanal, fragments of the forces on both sides could be seen. To the southeast. The Cushing, Monson, and Udachi were listing beneath columns of smoke. Off Lunga Point, the Portland circled, and south of her was the shattered Atlanta. North of Savo was Heoway, with a bunch of fellow warships trying to help her put out her fires. At 6.30, Heoway identified an enemy vessel 14.5 miles away and opened fire upon her. It was the immobilized Erin Ward, but before the Heoway could sink more shells into her, aircraft began arriving, distracting the Hayaway, and while this was occurring, a tugboat took Aaron Ward to Tulagi Harbour. Portland saw the Udachi and like the Hayaway open fire from around 12,500 yards away, managing to land a shell blowing up a magazine sending the ship right to the bottom of Iron Bottom Sound. The same tugboat that saved the Aaron Ward came back for Atlanta as the Portland managed to crawl to Tulagi going just 3 knots. Atlanta listed and was on fire, having sustained over 49 hits. Captain Jenkins was unscathed and other survivors were using buckets of water to try and combat the fires. When the tugboat arrived, smaller boats came about to take the wounded from Atlanta. The tugboat's crew saw some heads popping up and down out of the waves and began to open fire with machine guns until Captain Jenkins begged them to stop, as there were many Americans out there alongside Japanese struggling in the water. Not to mention it's a war crime to shoot survivors in the water. Atlanta was deemed unsavable and would sink by 10.15pm, just 3 miles west of Lunga Point. 1,400 seamen from Calaghan's task force would come ashore at Lunga Point as well. The Cactus Air Force launched to action at 6.15am to hunt down the highway. Five Dauntless and four Avengers attacked the battleship claiming one bomb hit and one torpedo hit. 7 more Dauntless dived upon the highway at 8.30am, but to no success, followed by a second attack at 10.10am by 4 Avengers claiming another hit. At 10.15, 9 Avengers of Enterprise with 6 Wildcats attacked the highway, believing to have scored an additional 3 hits. Then at 11.10, 14 B-17s dropped 56 500-pound bombs over the highway, claiming just a single hit. Then, because there's more folks, At 11.20, 6 more Dauntless attacked the Hayaway reporting multiple bomb hits. And yes, then at 12.20, 6 Avengers made perhaps one hit in the Hayaway followed by another failed attack at 1.34pm. By this point, 70 aircraft had tried to take down the Hayaway. The Junya sent 23 Zeros and the 11th Air Fleet sent 12 more to try and defend the Hayaway and they tangled with some of the Wildcats resulting in 3 Zeros being lost. During the endless barrage, Nishida reported 3 bomb hits and 4 torpedo hits. Heioui was mutilated, her crew brutalized. By 8.15, Abe had transferred to the Yukikaze and ordered the Heioui to be towed to Shortland with Kiroshima at night. As the aerial attacks mounted up throughout the day, Abe decided the Heioui just could not be saved, and ordered her to beach on Guadalcanal at 10.20. But it was not possible to manage. At 12.35, the crew was taken off Heoway, but Nishida pleaded with Abe that his ship could still be saved. At 3.30, the Heoway was visibly listing, and Abe knew for sure the jig was up, so he ordered it scuttled. Nishida challenged the command, but at this point, Abe put his foot down. Over 300 men died aboard the Heoway, and she would finally sink at night. The morning after the battle found Captain Hoover of the Helena in command of the small task force moving south from Espiritu Santo. Although the task group was zigzagging, the Junot's damage limited her speed to around 18 knots, and at 11, the I 26 found them and fired torpedoes at the San Francisco. The torpedoes missed the San Francisco, but one hit Junot, to which Lieutenant Commander McCandless recalled, The Junot didn't sink. She blew up with all the fury of an erupting volcano. There was a terrific thunderclap and a plume of white water that was blotted out by a huge brown hemisphere a thousand yards across. From within which came the sounds of even more explosions. When the dark cloud lifted from the water a minute or so later, we could see nothing of this fine 6,000 ton cruiser or the 700 men that she carried. It seemed highly unlikely anyone survived. But naval tradition, and just, well, honestly, pure humanity, dictated Hoover should try to rescue anyone who was still in the water. However, Hoover faced a horrible decision. San Francisco was too damaged. Helena was too critical to lose, and leaving one or both destroyers to pick up the men would endanger the other ships and their crew. Hoover could not stop. He signaled to some B-17s passing by requesting for rescue efforts, though the message never got to anyone. Halsey learnt of the Junio's fate the next day, and upon requests from Admiral Turner, Fitch, and Calhoun, he relieved Hoover for failing to report the Junio's sinking. Years later, Halsey would publicly state it was a mistake, and an injustice to relieve Hoover, for his decision was a difficult one. A hundred to hundred and twenty men had bobbed up from the oil-filled water from the Jeanneau. The survivors got together and collected three rafts and seven life nets. San Cristobal was visible in the distance and all the able-bodied men began rowing their tiny flotilla towards it. They faced days of blazing sun on exposed skin. They ran out of food in three days and only had rain to drink. Many expired, and the flotilla attracted sharks. The sharks went first after the men trying to swim out to shore, and thus were more isolated. But soon the sharks became emboldened, and went for the men near the rafts. Signalman Lester Zook had this to say about a man he saw, who had been bitten in the shoulder, leaving his arm hanging by a thread. He looked at his shipmates there, and realized that he was making them nauseated. That he was driving them crazy by just being there and the sharks were getting around close in the water because of his blood knowingly he pushed himself off the life nets and swam out five or six feet and he let the sharks have him rather than lay there and die like a coward and jeopardize the lives of his shipmates the ultimate survivors separated into four groups The first group made a seven-day voyage to the island with three survivors in total. The second, initially numbering 12 men, saw a single man survive, who had held on to a friend whose legs were bitten off by sharks. The third and fourth group, originally of 27 men, got separated and only six would be saved after 10 days at sea. Cheneaux had around 10 survivors, while 683 men perished. Atlanta lost 170, Barton, 165, Monson, 145, San Francisco, 86, Cushing, 72, Leifey, 57, Sterrett, 29, Portland, 16, Aaron Ward, 15, and a single death occurred on Helena. 1,439 Americans died, including five Sullivan brothers and two admirals. The Japanese had 255 men missing and around 297 dead. Early on November the 13th, both Admirals Halsey and Yamamoto knew Abe had been deflected, and they both moved to swiftly improvise new plans. Yamamoto rested upon Z-Day being the 14th and ordered the Kitishima to sweep the Lunga area and shell Henderson Field solo on that night. Most of Abe's warships were too damaged to join Kitishima. Admiral Kondo decided to send the Atago and Takeo to help Kido'shima as escorts, while the rest of the advance force would station themselves north of Guadalcanal to pounce upon the enemy if they came. Halsey got Enterprise ready to use her 78 aircraft alongside battleships Washington and South Dakota to help the Cactus Air Force. Halsey ordered Admiral Kincaid to form a separate task force composed of two battleships and four destroyers, designating her Task Force 64 to go to iron bottom sound and to block the japanese efforts to bomb henderson field task force 16 was 360 miles south of Savo island and the task force would be unable to reach the area until 8 am the next morning leaving a clear window for the bombardment of henderson field to occur admiral Mikawa took his eighth fleet out on november the 13th suffering a hit from one of macarthur's b-17s critically damaging the michishio Mikawa led the main body and the support force, and on November the 14th, the support force detached northwest of Savo to bombard Henderson Field. At 1.30am, floatplanes dropped flares as the two heavy cruisers, Suzuya and Maya, fired 989 8-inch shells at Henderson Field. Nishimura leading the support force concluded despite the chain of explosions, the airfield was probably still usable, and he was very correct about that. They had not even hit right airfield they had actually shelled fighter one taking out two wildcats and one dauntless mikawa and nishimura rendezvoused at 750 south of new georgia where they were attacked by american aircraft it was five dauntless three avengers and eight wildcats that found them at 8 30 failing to do any damage during the night task force 16 was 200 miles southwest of guadalcanal sending out search planes which soon reported that 140 miles out 10 unidentified ships were coming towards the task force. This led Admiral Kincaid to launch a strike of 17 Dauntless and 10 Wildcats to hunt north. Scouts eventually found Mikawa's cruisers and destroyers south of New Georgia at 8.15am. At 9.30, the Dauntless scout dive-bombed the Kinugaze, landing a hit in front of her bridge, killing Captain Sawa. Another set of Enterprise scouts found Mikawa, leading to another hit, this time on Maya's main mast, igniting a magazine and killing 37 of her crew. Based on scout reports, the strike force found Mikawa at 8.40, and the Dauntless dive-bombed Chokai and the Izuzu, hitting their boiler rooms and causing Izuzu to lose steering control. Kinugaza was hit again, causing flooding which capsized her by 11.22, taking 511 of her crew down with her. Tanaka's 23-ship convoy was sailing for its second time, and when they got close to New Georgia, they received word of the attacks on Makawa's fleet. At 8.49, Enterprise scouts found Tanaka's convoy, and at 9.08, they attacked them. They did not hit any of the shipping, but Enterprise's strike group was still close by. By 12.50, 18 Dauntless and 7 Avengers showed up, whose pilots claimed to have made 12 bombs and 2 torpedo hits. The Nagado Maru was hit by a torpedo, the Sadu Maru and Canberra Maru were maimed by bombs. A third strike came from Guadalcanal, finding the convoy at 2.30, sinking the Brisbane Maru. They were joined by 7 B-17s that dropped bombs at 3, but all missed. A fourth major attack came again from Enterprise at 1.05, and it was 8 Dauntless and 10 Wildcats. This group crippled the Shinano Maru and Arizona Maru, who would have to be abandoned. The last three strikes of the day by the Cactus Air Force and Enterprise hit, the remaining transports sinking the Nakao Maru. The 11th Air Fleet and the R-area Air Force tossed 45 Zeros to fight off the enemy, losing 13 of them in the process and taking down 5 Dauntless. Only the darkness of night saved the convoy from torment as Tanaka's convoy had to fend off the enemy for over 7 hours. Of Tanaka's 23 ships, 6 were sunk and another one had to be escorted back for repairs. 450 men had been lost and Tanaka did not know if he should continue. Then at 6:15, Yamamoto ordered him to keep going to Guadalcanal, using his remaining four transports. But during the day, the Japanese search planes had also discovered an American surface fleet of six vessels sailing towards Guadalcanal. By 8:25, the American force was 100 miles south of Guadalcanal and seemed to be heading towards Tanaka. Tanaka moved his convoy to get behind the incoming Kondo force. Kondo had been steaming south since 530, with a reduced strength now of one battleship, two heavy and two light cruisers, and nine destroyers. Kondo split up his forces, sending a sweeping unit led by Rear Admiral Hashimoto, consisting of one light cruiser and three destroyers, while Kondo would direct the bombardment unit of Atago, Takeo, and Kirishima, and Rear Admiral Kimura would lead a screening unit. Kondo expected to clash with a few American cruisers and destroyers by 7 a.m., he told Tanaka he would clear a path for him by eliminating the seaborne opposition off Lunga Point. Admiral Willis Lee was leading the American ships north on November the 14th while he received intelligence that the enemy bombardment group and convoy might have a strength equal to three battleships, eight to ten cruisers, a dozen or so destroyers, and nine transports. Halsey had given Lee freedom to act as soon as he reached Guadalcanal, and Lee determined to take an excursion east of Savo to see if he could confront the bombardment group and then the convoy later on. Lee placed two of his battleships and four destroyers in a single column. But he made his flagship one with SG radar as he understood fully its valuable capabilities. Now Lee certainly had less guns, but he had more heavy ones. Both American battleships outclassed the Kitoshima. Each American battleship held 16-inch guns and had much more armor than Kitoshima, so much so they were practically immune to 14-inch or less shells. However, the Japanese always had the edge in torpedoes, something that could kill a battleship. It would take multiple hits to sink Washington or South Dakota, but Kondo brought over 90 of them. Some of Lee's sailors saw the glow of fires at night, which were Tanaka's burning transports just 21 miles southwest of Savo. At 948, Lee's force was 12 miles north of Savo and he began heading southeast as Kondo was splitting his force into three units. Admiral Hashimoto prepared his sweeping unit, peeling off and almost immediately, men aboard the Shikinami began to see distant silhouettes of enemy ships. Hashimoto took his force clockwise around Savo to try and get behind the enemy, while detaching Ayanami to conduct an independent counterclockwise swing to sweep just in case. By 10.30, Kondo received reports of the enemy. Hashimoto was hunting, but then he got reports of more ship silhouettes in a westernly direction. By 11, Kondo was receiving a ton of reports confusing him, but he assumed this westernly enemy had to be Tanaka. Yet, just in case, Kondo decided to take his force and help Hashimoto deal with the incoming enemy before commencing the bombardment of Henderson Field. By 11.15 his force was passing north of Savo, and he ordered Hashimoto and Kiramura's screening force to follow the enemy to the eastern side of Savo, where they would all engage them. Washington's SG radar picked up Hashimoto's unit at 10.52, at a range of 9 miles. She tracked the unit until 11:12 when the main battery director acquired them visually. South Dakota likewise had them in sight, but none of the destroyers did. At 11:16, Lee granted the order to open fire when ready, and a minute later Washington fired from 18,500 yards her first salvo, while her 5-inch guns fired star shells over the Japanese column. South Dakota fired 16-inch shells a minute after Washington. Hashimoto quickly ordered smoke to be laid down and for the unit to wheel around. Hashimoto seemed to have believed he was facing cruisers and not battleships. At 1122, the battleships checked fire as the destroyers closed in on the enemy. Walkie and Benham targeted Ayanami, who was more isolated. Preston's lookouts then suddenly saw Kirimura's screening unit enter the scene sounding the alarm to a new threat by 1127. Walkie and Gwyn soon shifted targets to Kimura's ships which had been attempting to aid the two battleships by firing illumination. Kimura identified his enemy to be three destroyers and one cruiser. Nagata's 5.5-inch guns and the 5-inch guns of the destroyers began to batter the Americans. These destroyers stood more exposed in open water, while Kimura's had Savo behind them, making them much more difficult to target. The Japanese also enjoyed, as usual, an advantage with their long-lance torpedoes i and launched a few at 11.30, and five minutes later Kimura ordered all of his ships to do the same. Before the torpedoes even came near the Americans, the Preston was being shelled heavily by Nagara. She had received a hit, toppling her second stack which collapsed onto her starboard torpedo tubes, ripping a number of torpedoes and igniting them. More hits in her engine room, and gun mounts began turning her into an inferno. Shells killed almost all the crew from the auxiliary con aft, including her executive officer. Preston's steering jammed and only her forward guns could bear upon the enemy. By 11.36, Commander Storms ordered abandon ship and less than a minute after, Preston began to roll over and hung with her bow in the air for 10 minutes before sinking. Storms and 117 crew managed to survive. The Gwynne was only 300 yards astern of Preston, witnessing the devastation. At 11.32, two shells hit Gwyn's engine room. Another shell ricocheted into her stern, splitting open two depth charges. The Waukee was also being battered, and one long lance smashed into her forward bridge, detonating two magazines. The explosions lifted the whole ship and shoved her hard to port. Her bow snapped right off, and she lost power and communications, while fires were occurring all over her. With ammunition igniting and exploding all over, Commander Fraser ordered abandon ship. As four rafts got into the water and the walkie sank, depth charges began to explode, killing men in the water bringing a death toll of 80 including Commander Fraser. The Benham was also hit by a long lance at her extremity bow. The explosion did not cause fatalities, but it did tear off a chunk from her lower bow, causing Benham to make a loop to try and escape the gunfire. Kimura's ships managed all of this with little damage, but the Ayanami would end up paying for her service. Iyanami pressed two miles within the American column, and when she opened fire, her gun flashes gave her away to the Washington. Washington, and to a lesser extent South Dakota, fired upon her, taking out Iyanami's engineering plant, causing her to lose power and leaving her a burning pyre dead in the water. With the two survivors, Benham and Gwen, crippled and hobbling, at 1148 Lee ordered them to retire. Meanwhile Kondo ordered the bombardment unit at 1139 to continue west to hunt for possible enemies. As the bombardment unit turned to course, at 1150 Takeo reported the enemy competition as one battleship and three destroyers. Lookouts on Atago also claimed to see what they thought looked like a battleship. Nonetheless Kondo discounted the possibility he was facing any capital ships. He still assumed he was facing just cruisers. He also received word from Ayanami at 1150 that the battle had evolved so auspiciously that the best move was to shell Henderson Field at this point. At 1154, he changed course 130 degrees towards Lunga Point. As Kondo swung the bombardment unit towards Henderson Field, Hashimoto detached Uranami to help the ailing Ayanami, while Sendai and Shikinami went towards Lunga Point. At 1157, Nagato reported seeing two enemy battleships just due north of Cape Esperance, but Kondo brushed this off as ridiculous. Washington's SG radar had picked up the bombardment unit and was tracking them. South Dakota followed suit and the two battleships closed in on Kondo just three miles away. Kondo's own lookout saw the South Dakota and labeled her as a heavy cruiser. Then at midnight, the Japanese lookouts began shouting that it was a battleship. Lee's battleships were 11 miles west of Savo and just before they presented their broadsides, the bombardment unit fired torpedoes targeting South Dakota at short range. Then at midnight, Atago opened up her searchlights upon the South Dakota, which finally proved to Kondo it was in fact a battleship. Gunners from all five Japanese warships poured every salvo they could upon the South Dakota, from 3.9-inch guns to 14-inch. At 12.02, Asigumo tossed some long lances into the water, adding to the long list of torpedoes on their way to the South Dakota. Many of the torpedoes prematurely exploded, making the Japanese think that they had scored multiple hits, but no torpedoes hit the battleship. In the span of four minutes, the South Dakota received 27 shell hits, and her armor defeated all of them, even the 14-inch shells. South Dakota's superstructure, however, did take a beating, but most of the shells did not even explode, and no major damage came about. While the punishment did not threaten her survival, in the words of Lee, The firing rendered one of our new battleships deaf, dumb, blind, and impotent. South Dakota's radios were knocked out. Her radar was damaged and her gun directors were disabled. Her main battery only got off five salvos. The attack on the South Dakota preoccupied the bombardment unit so much, they completely overlooked the presence of the Washington. Meanwhile, the Washington fired one pair of twin 5-inch guns upon the Otago. Another battery fired illumination rounds, and 9 barrels of the main battery targeted Kitashima at a range of 8,400 yards. The Japanese battleship was smashed by 9 16-inch shells and around 45-inch shells. Her two main battery turrets were disabled, her rudder was jammed, and she had multiple holes below the waterline flooding caused Kitoshima to be pulled to her starboard side and she began to make a circle to port. Kondo ordered the unit to pull to port but Kidoshima, lacking rudder control became separate from the rest. Kondo could see Tanaka's convoy was off his starboard bow and he adjusted the bombardment unit to change course to defend it. When the Japanese abruptly stopped firing upon the South Dakota, their fire teams went quickly to work putting out the countless fires the Japanese shells had caused. 39 men lay dead and 50 were wounded because of the shrapnel and fires, and Captain Gatch perceived that his ship was more of a liability now, so he decided to retire. As Kondo's unit was changing its course, it saw the South Dakota moving 6 miles away and Kondo began to wheel his ships to starboard to fire more long lances at them. It was just then that Kondo's lookouts reported a second battleship was beyond the first. At 12.13, Otago and Takeo each fired eight long lances towards the Washington at 4,000 yards. Kondo then swung the bombardment unit 300 degrees to fire broadsides upon the two battleships, and he ordered the convoy to turn away from the heated area of battle. Four minutes later, the Japanese thought their torpedoes had hit one of the battleships. Now during this entire escapade, Lee had gone into the action with six ships, but four of his destroyers got the shit kicked out of them by Kimura's group. However, between the four destroyers actions with Kimura and his two battleships, his forces had managed to thwart the bombardment of Henderson Field thus far. Now Lee only had Washington available, but she was fast, armored, powerful, and undamaged thus far. At 1220 he ordered Washington to continue the action, and she made her way dodging the torpedoes that had been sent against her. Meanwhile Kondo was stripped of Kitoshima, but held significant torpedo-wielding vessels. Kondo ordered Kimura to perform a pursuit course, but Hashimoto's screen unit was lagging well astern to Kondo and Lee as it was struggling to reload torpedoes. Tanaka, at his own initiative, detached Oyashio and Kagero to help attack the Americans while he kept four destroyers to protect his convoy. Washington converged on the bombardment unit as Kondo was reiterating to all units to converge and hit the battleship. Torpedo tubes were reloaded by 12.30 and Kimura began to pursue Washington. Lee saw the Kagero and Aoshio entering the battlefield and deploying smoke, so he had Captain Davis turn Washington hard to starboard to avoid running into torpedo close range. Lee at this point saw how many ships were bearing down upon him, so he had Washington make a southern retirement course. At this point, Lee had deduced that he had delayed the convoy so long that by the time it would reach Guadalcanal, it would be around daylight, allowing the Cactus Air Force a great opportunity to smash them while they unloaded. Kondo saw Washington's course change, and by 1232 ordered the bombardment to be cancelled. The Oyashio meanwhile fired torpedoes at the fleeing battleship, followed by the Samidare. Despite the extreme range, many of the torpedoes came close to hitting Washington, but none did. By 12.45, Kondo had lost sight of Washington and detached Asigumo and the Tiruzuki to chase her down. Kondo at this point deduced Tanaka's convoy was safe and no longer required his unit for protection. So, he would retire as lingering in the area meant more attacks from carriers or land-based aircraft. By 104, all Kondo's ships began their retirement, except for the Kirishima who was not responding to any messages. Asigumo, Terazuki, and Samedare found Kirishima at 1.43 a.m., 5 miles west of Savo, in deep distress. Kirishima was flooding dangerously, and her counter-flooding efforts were failing. She was beginning to roll over, and the Terazuki literally was trying to nudge up alongside her to stop this, but the ship was too large. Her crew abandoned the ship, and at 3.25, Kirishima rolled over and sank. Likewise, the Ayanami sank after a chain of explosions occurred at 2am. Over on the American side, the very damaged Benham had to be scuttled, and Gwyn launched some Mark 15 torpedoes at her, with one exploding prematurely, another missing, one ran erratically in the wrong direction, and the fourth also missed. Yes, those Mark 15s really did suck. The Gwyn was forced to shell Benham until she sank. When Kondo reached Truk, he reported the sinking of a South Dakota-class battleship, two cruisers, and two destroyers. In reality, the Americans lost Walkie, Benham, and Preston, while the Japanese lost Ayanami and Kitashima. 249 Japanese and 242 Americans had died. The Henderson Field bombardment was cancelled, and it was a clear-cut victory for the Americans. Lee proved himself an audacious commander, and Halsey had much praise for him. Tanaka continued for Tasafaranga, as per orders from Admiral Yamamoto, and beached the transports near the coast of Tasafaranga in order to unload them quicker. By 4 am, they ran aground along the coast near Tasafarongo and began unloading. By 4.30 Tanaka assembled his squadron to make their withdrawal back to Shortland. At 5.55 am, the Cactus Air Force and Enterprise sent waves of aircraft to hit the landing site. Shore and sea artillery also aided the effort two new 155mm guns and a pair of 5-inch guns fired upon the nearest two transports. The destroyer Meade, which was in the area, also aided to devastating effect. For 42 minutes, Meade fired upon the transports with her 5-inch and 40mm batteries. The combined attacks made the transports burning wrecks, destroying most of the ammunition and provisions. In the end, both sides were reinforcing Guadalcanal. Admiral Turner managed to get 5,529 men and a ton of supplies to Lunga, while Admiral Tanaka deposited only 2,000 men with a pathetic amount of supplies. Just 1,500 bags of rice, good for about 4 days, and 260 boxes of shells. Tanaka had lost 10 transports the IGN simply could not spare. Overall, the naval battle of Guadalcanal saw the Americans lose two light cruisers seven destroyers, and 1,732 men. The Japanese lost two battleships, one heavy cruiser, three destroyers, and 1,895 men. 26 American and 41 Japanese aircraft were also destroyed. Tanaka's transport losses were grave. Henderson Field remained intact, and the Japanese military reluctantly reported It must be said that the success or failure in recapturing Guadalcanal Island, and the vital naval battle related to it, is the fork in the road which leads to victory for them. I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. So please, go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube, and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast written and narrated by me. And if after all that, you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube, where I've just released a series on many of the Medals of Honor earned at Guadalcanal. Give it a look, it'll mean a lot to me. The naval battle of Guadalcanal was chaotic and had multiple phases. It did not have the same shazazz as Midway, but it was an important turning point in the Pacific War, as the Americans had concretely gained the initiative now. The Japanese were falling upon a defensive foot.